Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. It's Monday, January 15th, 2018, and I'm really happy, happy to be back in the saddle after our long winter's break. And I am here, as I often am, with Corey DeVos, Editor-in-Chief of Integral Life. Hey, Corey, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, man. Super yeah. psyched to be back. Yeah, me too. I hope you all had a good holiday. Uh, Corey and I spent a good bit of it together, actually. We were at the What Now conference at the hotel here outside of Boulder. And um, we had a couple hundred people here in to talk about, uh, you know, the world as it is unfolding. And it was a great conference. Um, There's just some X factor about being with people who are flying at the integral altitude. And it's, uh, you know, I talked about it a little bit at the beginning of the conference. uh, And um, and I was thinking just how special it is, you know, to be seen and see other people and just have this sort of, um, you know, built in understanding. And, um, and I was thinking how special it is, but then I was sort of reminded that that's how I felt when I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal savior and hung around people who had done the same. And, you know, it's, uh, maybe it's no better, but it's definitely bigger uh, because we include more. And that is, so it's so fun. And Corey, you were saying that you did a, a roundup of the, the key ideas of the conference with Keith Witt on Saturday? Yeah, on Saturday we did uh, one of Keith's live with Dr. Keith calls, and we surfaced a lot of sort of the uh, more prominent themes that emerged. And, you know, we're basically talking about how, you know, whenever you do an integral conference, um, you sort of have to try to touch, you know, all parts of the elephant. And it's a really, really big elephant, which can, you know, make these these conferences a bit complicated. But... um, I think we did a pretty good job of threading the needle and kind of tying together all these different, you know, patterns of disruption, both in the exterior world and in the interior world and, you know, coming up with strategies of resilience and, yeah, and all that. Right I, think, I think it was great. Um, I agree with you. Me that too. The cloud was, was really wonderful. And there's just something sort of alchemical that happens when you get, you know, these folks into a room together. It's, you know, and it's not like, um, you know, we, we, integral people, we're a very diverse group and we've you know we bring a lot of different perspectives into the room uh but what's i think sort of amazing about it is everyone's capacity to hang with each other's perspective to actually take it on and mm-hmm. to see the world through each other's eyes which is you know a lot, I, I think comes a little bit more easily for the integral mind than it does for you know sort of previous stages yeah. um so it was yeah. it was electric they don't call it flex flow for nothing that's right <laughs> so yeah so we uh rang in the new year together it was over new years if you i guess consider going to bed at ten thirty, ringing in the new year <laughs> which is what i did but um anyway uh it's good to be uh in this new year and that's kind of what i wanted to talk about a, a little bit uh I-, I was just thinking about you know the the new year and um and how a couple years ago I did uh, a show on how, I think it was 2016, was the best year in history. And, um, you know, I get my share of eye rolls and scorn for that kind of a thesis. But, you know, I maintain it's true. I mean, from the broadest perspective, which is what we're going for at Integral, a global perspective, uh, one that takes human history into account, uh, it's pretty much undeniable. 
And I'll get to some of the reasons in a minute. But I, I do <laughs> notice that last year I didn't do that theme uh, because I, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll grant you it's harder to make that case uh, the year that Trump was elected, uh, even though I do think that, as I've, I've made this case in many of these past episodes, if we survive him, we'll be a better people for having endured him. But, um, but here we are ending 2017, opening 2018. It's the first year anniversary of the Trump presidency. We're all still intact, apparently, um, <clears throat> with some exceptions. And, um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wade back into the human progress waters here a little bit. And, and part of <clears throat> why I have, <clears throat> excuse me, Part of why I have the courage to do that is that um, I'm noticing that more and more people in the cutting edge of the intelligentsia, if you will, uh, the, you know, the punditry and so forth, and, and, and even people I know, are, are able to sort of hold this idea of progress in, in a way that has been, you know, difficult when we were more green, if you will. And, and I, I use a couple examples of this. Uh, one of them was a, a column by Nick Kristoff, who is the, one of the most liberal columnists in the New York Times. And I, and I actually think Nick Kristoff is, is very integral. Uh, he's always traveling around the world to these hotspots to, with refugees and you know, genital mutilation and all of the horror stories of, of, of what's going on in the world. And yet he wrote a column over New Year's in the New York Times called Why 2017 Was the Best Year in Human History. And I was like, wow, Nicholas Kristof too. And, uh, and here's just a few uh, lines from that um, column. He said, we need some perspective as we watch the circus in Washington with our hands over our mouths in horror. He goes on to say, every day, the number of people around the world living in extreme poverty, that is less than $2 a day, goes down by 217,000, according to calculations by Max Roser, an Oxford University economist who runs a website called Our World in Data, which is a fascinating with the website, Our World in Data, uh, Oxford University. He points out, in addition to the 217,000 who come out of extreme poverty every day, there's an additional 325,000 more people gain access to electricity and 300,000 people gain access to clean drinking water. That's three times the size of Boulder County every day. Uh, he goes on to say, as recently as the 1960s, a majority of humans had always been illiterate and lived in extreme poverty. In another 15 years from now, illiteracy and extreme poverty will be mostly gone. After thousands of generations, they are pretty much disappearing on our watch. And he goes on to make various cases and so forth. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the column, I, I sort of got a kick out of it because he sort of had to apologize to his readers a little bit for having this uh, uh, point of view, he, uh, for bringing it forward. And, and so he, he writes at the end, granted, this column may feel weird to you because he knows who his audience is. They're the readers of the editorial page of the 
New York Times, like me, you know, a lot of people who were waist deep in green. And, and then he, at the end of the uh, column, he promises, he says, every other day this year, I promise to tear my ha- hair out and weep and scream in outrage at all the things going wrong. So, you know, I said, all is well at the end. Um, <laughs> I also noticed a column by Andrew Sullivan, who is, um, I miss very much. I mean, Andrew used to do the Daily Dish and me and my friends would uh, read it all day, you know, every day and, you know, forward things from him. And he's a great intellectual, in my opinion. He, he gets a hysterical every so often, but um, I really find him well worth reading. So anyway, he writes a column in New York Magazine uh, called Trump's First Year Has Been a Disaster, and Here's Why I Have Hope. And so the first few paragraphs are about the disaster part. He talks about the White House is a smoldering crater of chaos and dysfunction. We have record levels of social and economic inequality, uh, unprecedented peacetime debt, massive transfer of wealth to the very rich, funded through an increase in the national debt of close to a trillion dollars. Let's talk about the latest tax bill. Experiencing the first catastrophes of an era of climate change. And he ends the paragraph with, oh, and Neil Gorsuch. Now, you can argue with any of this if you want, but it it establishes his, you know, liberal base with the readers of New York Magazine. You know, it's what they have in common. Uh, and that's fair enough. Uh, but he then follows all of that by saying that many other indicators in the world are remarkably good right now. Economic growth is ubiquitous in the developed world, including even Japan, for the first time in quite a while. In America, we are in a record eighth year of economic growth, bringing peak employment and finally a bump in earnings. Median household income is now at the highest in history. The Dow is at 25,000. Medicine has effectively abolished most, most of the diseases which used to kill us in mass numbers. Illegal, illegal border crossings to the U.S. have fallen to record lows. More Americans have health insurance than at any point in history, and Trump has failed to kill Obamacare. Crime rates are at a historic lows and keep declining in ways that simply baffle criminologists. Hang on, let me turn this off. Solar energy is finally competitive with fossil fuels. Global conflict continues its long centuries-old decline. ISIS has been destroyed in its own heartland. Anyone with a phone has access to more learning and knowledge than at any point in human history. More people live in democracies today than a dozen years ago. And when natural disasters happen, they kill fewer people in a far more populous world. The last decade has seen the biggest decline in global poverty ever, and on and on, he writes. And, and it does go on and on. I mean, the, the, you know, whether it's electricity or calories or communication or internet, uh, sanitation, disease, people are, you know, from, the, again, that global historic perspective, living better than ever before. But, of course, is this how people feel? No. Um, 90% of the people in the United States say that global poverty is getting worse or staying the same. Uh, the Washington Post did a survey of Americans 
to see what word they would use to describe 2017, the year just ending. Number one, chaos, chaotic. Number two, crazy. Number three, challenging. Number four, great. We finally got a positive word. The word great, and this probably is the Trumpsters. Uh, the fifth most uh, common word to describe 2017, tumultuous, turb turbulent. Number six, horrendous slash horrid. Number seven, disappointing. Number eight, interesting. <laughs> and we all know what interesting means. Disastrous is number nine. And again, a good one at the end, good uh, is number 10. Uh, so, you know, and, and of course, this is a well-established um, dimension or, or characteristic of the human psyche is that we have what psychologists call negativity bias, which is that we're tuned to figure out what's wrong. And of course, that's evolutionarily appropriate. There's the, you know, classic old saw about, um, you know, the person who's just chilling out and watching Netflix in the old caveman days is the one who's most likely to get eaten by the tiger. Uh, the one who's a neurotic mess and looking around and can't sleep and, and uh, you know, anxious is the one who's most likely to see it. So that is appropriate. And we have that, you know, built in. And as Christoph said in his article, he said, we journalists focus on bad news. We cover planes that crash, not those that take off. But the backdrop of global progress, the backdrop of global progress may be the most important development in our lifetimes. And, and I think that's true. He, he notes that there was never a headline saying the industrial revolution is happening, even though that was the most important news of the last 250 years. And I would argue that we are in the middle of a consciousness revolution that is as important and, and consequential as the Industrial Revolution. And it's happening right now, and we can see it. And, you know, we can, and, and part of it is, is that especially as we move into integral territory where we begin to see the movement of evolution in history and even the movement of evolution in ourselves, we could see these big moves that we ourselves have made, you know, that, that at red we get powerful and we leave mother and we go out into the world. At amber, traditionalism, we get civilized. We learn how to sit down in a row and raise our hand and answer questions, and, and we become far less violent at traditionalism, even though, you know, historically traditional societies are violet and compared to the next stage, which is orange, rational. Uh, green, we become sensitive. At integral, we have a flex flow that allows us to actually um, partake of the gifts of all previous stages and to hold them in a bigger, more open, flexible space. And, and I, I, I go back to this, uh, the line from Andrew Sullivan's um, column where he said that, and I see this all over the place, and it's often in similar language. He said, crime rates are at historic lows and keep declining in ways that simply baffle criminologists. And I don't know if you, many of you may have seen the, um, 
statistics out of New York City where the, the crime rate, I forget the, the numbers, but they shocked even me at how low the crime rate is. And also, um, considering that they stopped uh, the stop and frisk program a couple of years ago, uh, that crime rate just continues to fall and far less black men are incarcerated as a result. So very good, getting smarter here. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, that criminologists are baffled. Uh, to me, you know, at least my pet theory is we're just getting more conscious. You know, people at all strata are still plugged in to this mediaverse where we see other perspectives, we see other people, we watch these little morality plays on television called sitcoms, whatever. They're, we're just uh, being, we're, we're soaking in a modern and postmodern view. And that is just, you know, violence doesn't make sense at that stage. Uh, it, it, it's not the best way forward. Uh, previous to those stages, it actually was the best way forward. You'd go take what you wanted. So, um, you know, there's just these modern sensibilities are coming online in all kinds of ways. There was a headline in the New York Times the other day uh, talking about the country of Wales. And the, the, the headline was, Wales moves towards ban on slapping as discipline for kids. And it talked about how Wales is soon to follow Scotland in joining now 50 countries who ban physical punishment of children. And of course, there's always, you know, the other side, there's, there's the movement called the Be Reasonable Movement that opposes these laws, saying that it criminalizes parenting. Uh, but <laughs> but and fair enough. I mean, that's the, the traditionalists still sort of think that it's okay. And then there's the people who are ambivalent in between and sort of have a foot in modernity and a foot in traditionalism. And, and my dad was one of those people. And uh, I can remember when I was, oh, I was probably eight or nine, and I don't remember what I had done, but my mother was all upset with me, and it was, uh, when my dad got home from work, I was going to get a spanking. And so, you know, we waited for my dad to get home from work, and she told him, and, and I had to go get a spanking. And so we went into my room, and he looked at me, and he was, it was pathetic. Uh, he, he actually said to me, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And I can remember very clearly that moment. We, we had this, this eye contact. And I, I said to him, yeah, right. Uh, we sort of had a little laugh. There was something about it that was a little bit funny. And then, <laughs> and then ensued the most pathetic spanking ever given a child in Edinburgh, Pennsylvania to that point. I mean, it was a pantomime of spanking. Uh, I actually felt sorry for him. And, and I realized now it did hurt him more than it hurt me. And so this is just the natural, you know, civilization process. And, um, and yet it's, it's often misunderstood. You know, you know I, I, I pointed out in past episodes, uh, one of them was uh, the, the Marine Dowd column on um, the Sandusky and the child abuse in Penn State and, you know, the little kid in the shower and, and so forth. And, and her column about how this is about the degeneration of our society. And, you know, I think I even played a segment from Morning Joe where Mike Barnacle was talking about the Harvey Weinstein, the Me, Me Too movement, this awareness around 
of sexual harassment as uh, the, you know, more proof of the degradation of society when actually it's the exact opposite. It's, you know, all of history, children were abused and often sexually. Uh, women were certainly subjugated and harassed. And as, even though it's unpleasant, this lancing, the, 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 this shining light on these situations is fundamental progress. Um, but, you know, all first-tier memes, that, that is from archaic up to postmodern, all six of those first, what we call first-tier memes of development, those stages of development, they all have some story about human beings falling from paradise and that we uh, have done it, we've disobeyed, we have to be punished, we have done it wrong, we've driven it into a ditch, and, um, and if you listen to me, maybe we can find our way out of it. And everybody, every stage has their, you know, solution to the problem. So, you know, what, what I'm seeing in the culture, and, and I'm happy to see this, is more of an integral view where we're able to hold both, where we can see what's wrong, and we can definitely feel into the abject suffering that still is going on in the world that is as abject as it ever was in certain situations, a vanishing point, but still there, um, and yet still see the movement of goodness, truth, and beauty as it unfolds through these, you know, ever uh, evolving stages of development. Uh, so, you know, green still has that, you know, dystopian view. Uh, and it's not just developmental. I think it's also typological. I think there are some people even at integral stages who have, maybe it's residual green. We all have that, of course, or residual first tier. But it's also just, you know, their type or how they're sort of wired. And I had an experience of this the other night. I had uh, my friends uh, Bob and Michelle over for dinner, and we were having a nice dinner, the four of us. And we were talking about how, you know, kids today, that they're going to live to be 150. And, you know, somebody put that out. And it was, you know, we all think there's some truth to that, 120, 150, whatever it is. And I remember thinking, as that was said, that, uh, and I was just wrapping my lips around the words. I wonder what cool new things these kids are going to experience. And before I could get the words out, Bob said, wow, I wonder what cataclysms <laughs> these kids are going to have to experience. And it's just, you know, that quick where our minds went. And, you know, takes all sorts to make the world. But it's, uh, you know, it, it's a habit of thought that, I'm probably as guilty of as he is. And, you know, it's, uh, there was a, a, a quote from Adam Smith uh, writing in the 1700s about pessimism. And he said that pessimists have always been ubiquitous and have always been feted. They've always been celebrated. Uh, five years have seldom passed away in which some book or pamphlet has not been published pretending to demonstrate that the wealth of nations was fast declining, that the country was depopulated, agriculture neglected, manufacturing decaying, and trade undone. And that is certainly, um, you know, my experience. I, I, I was an apocaholic for the first 25 years of my life until I found Integral, uh, maybe. 
maybe a few years after that. But, um, you know, it was the population bomb. I remember being terrified about that. Killer bees, acid rain, Ebola, mad cow, a bird flu, all these plagues. Y2K was the king of them all. And all of them, you know, solemnly espoused by distinguished sober experts and hysterically echoed in the media. And, um, and, and, and we still have it. And the apocalypse of our time is climate change and, and the environment. And, uh, and let me just say that I think a lot of it's true and that I support every environmental policy I've ever heard of. But, uh, you know, you can, I, I, I've got some crisis fatigue, you know. Uh, I, I'm a recovering apocaholic at this point. And so I don't want to be frightened into action anymore. Um, that's one of the, you know, moves we, we talk about that, you know, the difference between first tier, those first six stages and second tier, starting with the integral, you know, teal turquoise and so forth is that we move from, and this is Claire Graves original research into this. Uh, we move from deficiency needs or the, the idea that something's deficient or wrong and has to be fixed. That's first tier to in second tier, what he calls being needs or, this the the sense that we actually want to contribute we want to create we want to love and so you know we move from a fear operating system to a love operating system and uh where we act and and, and, it, and it's not you know i find pessimism and optimism to be um you know very inadequate words it's not I don't feel particularly optimistic. I, I think a lot can go wrong. A lot is going wrong. But I think things going wrong is part of the way forward. That's just, you know, that's built into the system. And, and I don't necessarily prove of that, but, but I wasn't consulted when the universe was being created. And so, you know, this seems to be the way it is. We sort of fail and fight and the other F word our way forward. And, um, and it's uh, beautiful, but not pretty as I often say. And, um, and I do think that there's, a, there's an imperative, that there's a moral calling for those of us who are integral practitioners to really challenge our fear stories and, and challenge how we're using fear. I mean, I actually think that using fear with first-tier people is still useful because first-tier responds to it. I mean, it's, it's sort of a moral dilemma in a way. But it also... I think leads to a lot of bad policy. You know, when we think about climate change and the real dangers of climate change, you know, it's disheartening that it's so far down the list of concerns for everybody except postmodernists, except for green, you know, 30%. Uh, you know, there's a statistic I saw where 58% of those in Britain who voted to leave the EU at Brexit the 58% of those people who wanted to leave the EU say that life is worse today than it was 30 years ago. Um, so that's certainly true for the Trumpsters and the Make America Great Again. I mean, it's an explicit a call to, you know, go back and to some 1950s era or whatever somebody thinks what America was greater than it is now. And, you know, as Christoph said in his article, in the New York Times, he said, in the 1950s, the U.S. had segregation, 
polio, and bans on interracial marriage. Uh, bans also on gay sex and birth control. Most of the world lived, lived under dictatorships. Two-thirds of parents had a child die before the age of five. Let me read that again. Again, this is a global statistic. Two-thirds of parents had a child die before the age of five in the 1950s. It was a time of nuclear standoffs, of pea soup smog, of frequent wars, of stifling limits on women, and of the worst famines in history. So, um, you know, we actually don't want to go back there. Um, the, what I think can come forward into an integral understanding of progress is that, you know, it's not like suffering really goes anywhere. It, it transforms. There, there's a truth. There's a basic truth to suffering. The, 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 you know, it's the, the first noble truth of Buddhism, that life is suffering, that life is dukkha, that, um, uh, you know, I always love what Trumpa said, uh, Chokum Trumpa said that, you know, he's not sure that suffering was the best translation of dukkha, that it's basically, for, at least for our sensibilities in our, in our world, it's a sense that of dissatisfactoriness, unsatisfactoriness, that things aren't the way they should be, that something's wrong. And, you know, that continues. But, but here's how it continues. And I, and, I, and I think this is really a helpful way of looking at it is, you know, for the most part, we're moving out of gross suffering. You know, in Integral, we talk about how we live in three great states of being. The gross state, that is our physical state. We live in the subtle realm, which is the realm of thought and argument and ideas and so forth. And then we live in the causal realm, which is the more spiritual, which actually sort of, you know, dissolves into the absolute reality. And um, that what we can notice is that gross state Suffering is what's really coming to an end. The idea of starvation, violence, uh, women dying in babies, dying in childbirth, disease, uh, all of that is, um, you know, we still have to die. But that, uh, you know, abject suffering of the physical state is what's diminishing radically. But what is... Uh, not decreasing, and maybe even is increasing in a certain way and in certain flavors, is the suffering in the subtle realm. And, um, you know, the alienation and isolation and anxiety. I'm reading about these, you know, how the, 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 the incidents of depression and anxiety among teenagers, and it's really heartbreaking to me, and I sort of get it. You know, because it's a confusing world. It's so big, the, the, the virtual world, the real world. Uh, I think a lot of it's just we have the, 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 the time and leisure, if you will. I mean, we're not out looking for calories to actually look at our internal state for the first time and realize, Eesh, you know, I'm going to die. I mean, this is an unsatisfactory world. And so that is, the, that, that is the flavor and nature of suffering when we get to the modern world and postmodern world, anxiety and depression, alienation, isolation. Uh, is that preferable to existential fear that there is a real enemy on the other side of the flat irons here in Boulder? 
or that, uh, you know, they're about to strike tonight. Uh, that's how humans lived for many millennia. Natural disasters, a drought was deadly, uh, a flood, uh, disease, the beasts of the forest. Uh, that we don't have to worry about them anymore, or at least in the same way. Is that better? I'd say, yeah. I mean, I'll take, I'll take, uh, you know, the, the, um, uh, the, the anxiety and depression over getting my throat ripped out. Uh, but it's still suffering. And so there is something true about that as, as, as we move forward. There's that sort of lost innocence. And, um, you know, that's, that's worth noting and feeling. And we're not trying to explain that away or ignore it, uh, but just sort of embrace it. And that's one of the things that happens in integral in general is that we stop being afraid of fear. Uh, we actually, in suffering, we actually want to turn towards it because we can see that, you know, allowing it in and seeing it is actually the means of metabolizing it. And um, so um, there you go. Uh, I, I, I think it's worth uh, contemplating as a thought experiment, at least, that we are living in an ever-brightening world and that everything's okay. Uh, and that, yes, we're going to die, but at, uh, as we move into the integral stages of development, we start to identify with... <clears throat> the transpersonal dimensions of our identity that actually don't die. Uh, and that's a topic for another discussion, but it's worth noting.